Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 221. The stuff you think you know is the stuff that does you in. And the old rule in journalism used to be, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Have you turned your key and heard that dreaded tick, 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 tick because of a dead battery? No worries. I've got the NOCO Genius Boost Jump Starter. This compact tool fits in your glove box and features rechargeable lithium battery technology that will start a dead battery in your car, boat, truck, or RV. It packs a whopping 12-volt, 400-amp starting power and can start up to 20 dead batteries on a single charge. Plus, it has built-in spark-proof technology with reverse polarity protection to safely jumpstart your vehicle. The compact, ergonomically designed clamps are solid copper for maximum conductivity, and there's a built-in ultra-bright dual LED flashlight with seven modes, including an SOS emergency strobe. It's easily rechargeable with a USB outlet, and you can charge your smartphone or tablet while you're on the road. Works on any 12-volt lead-acid battery. The Genius Boost from NOCO is the ultimate emergency tool that's safe and easy to use. Quality design, state-of-the-art technology from NOCO, your battery care source since 1914. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. Today, I am so excited to introduce a very special guest, Paul Duchenne. Paul, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Well, I should say, gentlemen, start your engines. But actually, that's not the most famous words in motorsport. What really is, he had me on power, but I was all over him in the corners. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. I love it. Paul Duchesne has been an automotive journalist for 40 years. In that time, he's owned about 250 cars, and he drove a nice set of three-wheeler daily as a reporter when he lived in London in the 1960s. He's raced motorcycles and ran the 1,000-mile MotoGiro d'Italian on a 1957 Ducati, and he ran the 5,000-mile Alcon Winter Rally six times. He's written for the Chicago Tribune, New York Times, Car and Driver, Auto Week, and Roundel, and he was the automotive editor at the Oregonian and the Portland Tribune, and executive editor at Sports Car Market Magazine. These days, Paul writes classic car auction catalogs for RM and Gooding, for the soon-to-be-open World of Speed Museum, and for Haggerty's European website. And you can hear Paul's voice at the Laguna Seca and Portland Historic Races as an announcer. Paul, I've told our listeners just a little bit about your incredible life around automobiles. Would you take a moment and share a little more about your history, your career, your interests, and, of course, your passion for automobiles and motorcycles? Well, I think uh, I was lucky. I grew up in uh, southeast England in Folkestone, and that's basically the west end of the White Cliffs of Dover. And we lived about, oh, I don't know, 200 yards probably from the clifftop. So up until the age of about 12, that's where I was let loose. In those days, as you and I were saying earlier, when you lived by the beach, you just spent most of your time kind of there. And in this case, my dad had been a dispatch driver in uh, World War II. And so he still rode motorcycles. And in fact, we had a motorcycle and sidecar combination when I was a kid. But it meant that he had no kind of bike phobia at all. And when I was about um, probably starting at about eight to nine years old, my neighbor friend, uh, David Williams, um, and there's a funny story about him I'll get to in a bit. Mm-hmm. Basically, he and I would go down to the bike shops, one of which, Halford, is still in Folkestone. 
and we would buy bikes that had failed the MOT test for about 10 bucks. Then we would take them home. Dad would help us get them running, and he had a rule. He said, you can't, you know, with your age, you can't ride in the city, but Weir Bay Road is only about 150 yards away. If you push the bike until you get on the other side of that, then you're basically on uh, sort of War Department land, and you can do what you like, except don't do anything stupid and don't fall off. So... <laughs> And that was basically, I spent a lot of time. Of course, the magic thing about motors is after you've kind of, you know, grown up catching buses and walking and riding bicycles, the idea you can actually go someplace and not have to make any effort to speak of is amazing. You're, oh, yeah. First of all, you know, a bicycle, first, and this really gives you the clue because it expands your world from five miles to 50 right away. Oh, yeah. And one thing that power does is that time goes away. If you, if you telescope time, all of a sudden you can go as far, but you can do it in, you know, in a tenth of the time. And so that was kind of how I got my head around the whole thing. And after David and I had done motorbikes for a while, we actually bought a 1935 Ford 10 off of a, a local priest. And um, he, he kept the rotor. He knew we'd drive it if he, if, if he gave it to us. So we had to push <laughs> it home. Oh, so we gosh. We it back across town. And... Uh, uh, basically uh, met our friends along the way, which is great, and they all helped push. That was good because <laughs> we had a big hill to get up. And then we went back and got the rotor later, and we drove the thing around the clifftops until it quit. And it was probably something simple, I'm embarrassed to admit now, but um, but actually it was like, what are we going to do with it? And David's father said, don't think you're living in the backyard. So, hmm. so we got our friends together again and said, what about if we were to just push it off the cliff? It you was, know, I was about away. to say, are, <laughs> is, are we <laughs> heading towards the cliffs here? <laughs> yeah, as as my brother says, yeah, well, you're a little bit hazy on conservation in those days. Yeah, know? yeah. And it was just like a movie. It was great. It went whizzing down the cliff and pieces flew off it. And, and it's a funny thing. I actually went back. My mother graduated from college in 2002 at the age of 77. Oh, my gosh. And I took, I took my kids back to England, and my son and I went, and I showed him what he'd grown up. My brother was there, too, and Nate, Nate my son, had no idea what the place was like, so he was really interested. And I said, and this is where, you know, we pushed this car off. I wonder if it's still down there. And, and they said, Dad, that was 50 years ago. <laughs> oh. So that was, that was my start in, in cars and bikes and so forth. And I had to move up to London when I was 12. You know, of course, motorbikes and things were out of the question then, so I got into racing bicycles, and then I got old enough to get a motorbike license, and then I got, you know, I wanted to get a car license. And so then I started on this string one thing we didn't mention, I would say that the net worth of these 250 cars that I've owned over the years is $250,000. <laughs> so, you know, if you're a reporter, as I've been, you've got to have transportation, yep. but uh, you don't have any money. So you wind up being at the very bottom of the food chain. <laughs> and, you know, I used to buy cars from the wrecking yard locally, and uh, there'd always be something terrible wrong with them. And my brother would say, well, what do you expect? It's a wrecking yard. Yeah. You know, and he would say, it's a mistake. I'm not supposed to be here. You know, etc. <laughs> they they spoke so, to you. Yeah, exactly. And that so that's how that's how I got started. And and I figure of all the different things I've learned, everything is teaches you something. You get a lesson, a different one out of everything you own. And some of them are good, and some of them are not good. And some of them basically you kind of chalk it up in the wall and say, well, I won't do that again. <laughs> but I that's love what it. that's. In a very short version, that's how I got started, and that's how I, the chain of cars kind of went through my hands. Right. Oh, I love it. Great stories. Well, as we continue on your journey, I always like to ask my guests for a success quote. And this, of course, is something that has some meaning in your life. It's a great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars, yeah? So, Paul, as long as you don't drive off the cliff, take the wheel. 
I think it's one of those things, uh, it seems to me I was talking about, or I was reading about, a good quote, a great meaning, something that you you found as a clue. And having been a reporter all my life and learning, and I've got, I'll tell you about this in a minute, um, the stuff you think you know is the stuff that does you in. And the old rule of journalism used to be, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. <laughs> and, and, and it's true. And, uh, and the mistakes that I've made, I would say, actually in work over the years, have been things I was absolutely certain of, and I was wrong. And, and I'll give you a good case in point, and this is the embarrassing one because it involved the New York Times. I was writing a history of uh, XK120s and in relation to an anniversary, mm-hmm. and basically one of the questions came up said, you know, so what, you know, what, what year were disc breaks you know, introduced? And I thought back in my past, and I, when I was working at the Isha News, one of our printers had a shop when he worked on race cars and things like that, and he had an XK140 in there, and I was helping him with the brake job, which, and it had disc brakes on it, it was a 1957 XK140, so without even bothering to look it up, I wrote 1957. Mm. Wrong. <laughs> it, it's the XK150 that came. This guy had, and this was a one in a car. This guy had ordered these brakes. They probably came off a C type. And so they'd been on the car ever since new. And Tony had been working on the car all these years. And, and you know, so he knew it. And I was helping him with some stuff. And so I knew it. Yeah. But we, I was wrong. And it's that one thing, the stuff you don't look up is the stuff that you know, that you sure you know comes back and bites you. It's it's invariable. It's, the other rule is never write in a language other than your own. Never throw a bon mot in French or 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 um, Hispanic or something like that because you'll get it wrong. Oh yes, yes. So, oh. Guilty as charged. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, wonderful. Well, I love those quotes. That's great, and I love the way that you uh, shared how you've incorporated those into your lives. You talked about being around cars when you're a kid and buying but is there a moment in time, that pivotal moment that instigated your passion for cars when you really knew that you were a car guy? Oh, I think it's the first time you get behind the wheel of anything, you know, and and you step on the gas and it goes. Mm -hmm. And suddenly the world gets, it doesn't, I'm not sure if the world gets smaller or you get bigger. (laughs) You know, it's something like that though. You know, it's just like, wow, you know, because if you think about it, one of the things I used to like when I was a kid was my dad was, um, he was always tinkering with things, and we had a motorbike and sidecar, a big old Panther 600cc uh, thing, and he was upset that it didn't have a brake on the, on the sidecar wheel. So my brother and I would go with him while he went around to all the wrecking yards in, uh, in our local area to try and find a wheel that would work that he could fit a brake to um, on the sidecar. And he finally came up with one off an Austin 7, an early one. Uh, but we got to hang around with him and go and do this stuff and go through wrecking hours, which are fascinating. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, what a, what a toy department that is. One of the things that uh, was interesting about that was watching all that stuff, was seeing it all, and remembering, you know, then that what you really want to be when you're a kid is to know what it's like when you grow up. Yeah. So you want to do grown-up stuff. You know, I never wanted my kid to come to my soccer matches or cricket matches. First of all, I'd probably make a fool of myself. You know, secondly, <laughs> that's not what I wanted to know about. I wanted to know what... I used to have this idea that when I was going to be 21 years old, suddenly everything would be clear to me and I'd be grown up. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah right. right. Exactly right. I mean, thank goodness my mother didn't disabuse me of that view because at least I had 21 years of not worrying about it. If I'd have thought that this whole trip was going to be, you know, an uphill climb, you know, for, for these 66 years, was it Chaucer's quote? Speaking of quotes, yep. the craft, let's see, the life's so short, the craft's so long to learn. Ah, uh, yes. That's, that's a quote from Chaucer. <laughs> Boy, isn't that the truth, you know? It is, for sure. 
Paul, what I'd love to do now is is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down and, and crawl into the hood and ask you to share a huge challenge or or even a great failure that you've faced in your career. Uh, the most important part of this has to do with how you overcame it. And even more important is, what did you learn from that experience? Well, I think there's some things that you learn, that you learn from that you don't succeed. You know, it's one of those things where, you know how sometimes if something goes wrong in the course of a day and then you solve it, it's better than if it didn't go wrong because you've actually succeeded, you've mm-hmm. achieved something. But the minute, it's kind of like, remember how before you got your driver's license, you couldn't imagine what life would be like if you didn't get it? Mm-hmm. You know, there was like a complete black hole ahead of you, you know? Yep. So, um, so, that, so that's, that's one kind of aspect. When you succeed at something, you forget about it. When you don't succeed at it, you, you know you don't, then you remember it. Like, if I ever get to feel confident, like I'm actually kind of fixing things and they're staying fixed and stuff like that, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of like, go and buy a Jaguar and learn something. Get yourself, <laughs> you know, or in my case, buy a Citroen DS19, you know. <laughs> if, I ever, if, I, if I ever get swollen-headed about stuff, if I go and buy a DS, then pretty soon I'm basically back down there like I was when I was in high school looking at the workshop manual on my Austin 7, willing it to make sense, just willing it to make sense. <laughs> Because DS is just, you know, they're, they're amazing. I mean, it's one of the great signs of, of wealth. Um, actually, above younger people in Europe is to have an absolutely perfect DS and a guy who can fix it because those things are unbelievably complicated and their mechanics and hydraulics were way ahead of the technology of the time. Right. And I always think when, when it was introduced in 1955, um, they sold, I think they took orders for like, I don't know, 60,000 cars at the Paris Auto Salon and so forth. Mm-hmm. And they managed to get out about 8,000 by the end of the year because they were actually having to learn how to build them. But here's the real note. The garages didn't get the shop manuals for about a year and a half. Now, can you imagine being a guy who's a wrench working on two CVs and light 15s and things like that, having a dead DS-19 come off of the trailer? I mean, where do you start? Right. Oh, gosh. You know, I mean, when hydraulic systems are all 2,300 psi, 2,200 psi, mm-hmm. and, it, and it controls everything on the early cars, you know, gear shifting, tension steering, the whole lot, and it's and that kind of pressure. When things go wrong, it's, you know, the car doesn't just get a leak; it's a heart attack. <laughs> you know, boom, it bleeds out. You know, yeah. it bleeds out a gallon of fluid in about five minutes, and that's it. Well, it's funny you mentioned Citron because the show we just did yesterday. The gentleman, when this one of the last questions I'm going to ask you is uh, one collector car in your garage, and he chose a Citroen, I believe it was the uh, SM? Oh, S&M, S&M, <laughs> yeah. Oh. So, but... Oh, God, let me tell you about those cars. Citroen had a deal with um, uh, Maserati, and Maserati wouldn't give him... Uh, in fact, Citroen bought Maserati, I think it was, and Maserati wouldn't give him a V8 uh, mm-hmm. for the SM, and that's why he got the V6 instead. I think out of the borer. Uh-huh. But here's the deal. Because of the way the engine is set up, the transmission is at the front, right? Yep. So the timing gear, the timing chain is at the back on an SM, right? And the timing chain tensioners are famously faulty. Mm. And here's the trick. If the tensioner fails and the thing jumps, it's an interruptible engine. So boom, you're stuck right there. And if the car then sinks to the ground, it is about an inch off the ground. And how in the blazes are you going to get underneath it to undo the stuff you're going to have to undo to get the engine out? (laughs) (laughs) They are a challenge. They are a challenge. I had a guest on very early in my days here at Cars, yeah, Kenji Yoshino, who lives up here in the Northwest who operates a business that sells Citroen parts. And, oh, yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, yeah, he's just yeah. north of here a little bit. And 
Yeah, I said one time, Kenji, parts for Citron? How much business could there be? And he said, you don't know Citrons. (laughs) (laughs) But he loves those cars. And I remember when he took me for a ride the first time, I always say it was like riding on a cloud. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can can take a railroad crossing in a DS um, at 100 miles an hour. And it just goes bump. Yep, kind of floats over. Yeah. Let's shift gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum. I'd love for you to share one of those aha moments in your career. One of those times when you realize that, you know what, I think this is a great idea. It's going to make some sense for me. And tell me the steps you took to turn your aha moment into a success. You know, honestly, I, I'm not sure that that really applies to me because I've always just been a writer. So the problems uh-huh. I've been solving have always been the ones that, that I need to deal with right now in order to get something finished. Mm. It's something that's kind of transitory. I, I mean, I work, to, I work to deadlines. That's one of the things I, I do. And I can't imagine a job where you don't. But at the end of the day, what I've got is a huge file of stories and a house full of books. Mm. So it, yeah. it's not, not really been, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a traveler. I'm kind of a troubadour, you know, in a way. I'm not somebody who's building anything. I always kind of look at shop windows and things that look like good, nice offices, and you think, wow, you know, that'd be a great display area. You could really sell things there. And I think, what would I sell? All I've ever been doing is selling myself, you know? Sure, sure. Well, that's an interesting way to put it. When you're a writer and all the different things that you've done, uh, I can see that. Yeah, you're uh, you're providing all this information and this wealth of information and um, the involvement with all the different people and the automobiles, um, extracting that out of your head is our challenge here. Yeah, well, basically what it is, it's like I've always been at school. As well. That's the whole thing. And cars are something that's interesting because they're so much, about, much part of our culture and our society. And, and if you think about, you know, how, how work out, I had a 1923 Chevrolet um, Speedster a few years back, and it would take me, literally about a day to drive to Salem, you know, which is 40 miles away, because you couldn't go on the freeway with it. It was terrifying over 35 miles an hour. And you sort of suddenly think, my God, the world was so big then. Yes, you know? yes. You know, and, and, and there was no guarantee that it wouldn't let go on you at any time, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, and that's one of the things. So in, other, in a way, every so often something comes along that is like an aha moment. Think, wow, that's going to be good, you know? It's sort of like, you know, when invention just breaks or something like that, you know, just <laughs> uh, it just wow, and you just you sort of see that there's like a like like a, a jump, and so, and I think there's a, okay, nothing against sex, drugs, and rock and roll, or even speed, but learning something new is the most exciting thing that can ever happen to you. Yes, I think. Yep, there's your aha, over and over and, and over right. again. Yes, okay, today in New Zealand. Guys have, have discovered that they can use ultrasound to basically clean up the brain when it's got Alzheimer's. 75% success rate on mice. Next, it's sheep. After that, it's people. Wow. That. That's an aha. Isn't it? Oh, it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, chilling. Yeah. yeah. How about proudest moments? I would assume you've had many in your career and all the different things you've done, but is there one in particular you could share with me today that really stands out for you? Well, yeah, actually, it's a funny one, too. In 1968, I wanted to be a, um, a novelist and a playwright, and I was working in a, in a bookstore, and uh, a book department of a big store in Kingston, which is close to where I live. One of the things they liked to do was uh, to, uh, to send their staff in various kind of, to school, various kind of improvement things. And so I was there working in the book department, and they said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'd like to get an advanced level, you know, English language certificate because in the exams we were took in school, English quit being a language and became literature. 
Mm. And studying books isn't the same thing about having to learn how to do the language, how to use the language. And he said, well, that's fine. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll sign you up for that. And, uh, the, and the Royal Society of Arts has a class exactly in that. And so I said, great, this is cool. It's what I want to do. Well, about two months later, one of my friends who had been stringing for two local newspapers got offered two jobs. And she said, well, I'm going to take the one at the Surrey Comet. Why don't you go for the Borough News? And I said, yeah, I'll go give it a try. Mm-hmm. So uh, I went in there and, and basically... I got the job, and uh, and so that that was something that changed, you know, I, what I was going to do with my life. Sure. Um, and uh, also, I learned another good lesson from the very blunt editor. We're 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 just beginning the interview, and he asked me what I think about comprehensive education. I say I don't know enough about it to to give you a coherent answer, and he's good answer. <laughs> and then the phone rang, and it was um, the mayor's wife that got picked up for shoplifting or something, and she was trying to talk the editor into keeping it out of the of the newspaper. Mm. And, and he and he sort of puts his hand over the phone and tells me who it is and says, "Give me a minute, I got to have to take care of this." <laughs> and uh, he goes, "Aha, aha, aha, aha!" He says, "Shouldn't have done it, then, should you?" Bang, hangs up on her. <laughs> oh, <Uh-oh. laughs> so I thought, well, this is going to be an interesting job. Yes. So anyway, um, I went back and quit the uh, the, the bookshop and uh, went to work as a, as a reporter. They said, "Can you type?" And I said, "Sure, I can." And by God, by the end of the week, I could. I can tell you that. <laughs> and uh, um, so I came, I, so I came, came back to uh, about, about a year later. I get a note from uh, this this tutor, and he says, "Look, we signed you up for this exam. You know, do you want to do you want to sit it?" And I said, "It's a great way of finding out if what I've been doing is actually going to do me any good." So I sat the exam. I, I had to hitchhike up to London for some reason to take it. And the guy who gave me a ride picks me up and he says, "Did you use to date Felicity Radcliffe?" And I said, um, "Yeah." Hmm? He said, "I live three doors down from you." You're the kid with that big American car with loud pipes used to leave there about 2 a.m. I've been wanting to talk to you. Oh, uh-oh. Uh- <laughs> and then he was very nice. And he actually yeah. took me where I was going. So anyway, I finished the exam and uh, you know, kind of forgot about it. And I actually got a silver medal in it. And I missed getting a gold by like one point And my prof to go to college said, damn, he said, we never did get anybody, you know, get that kind of a, a score on it. She said, if you'd have gotten the gold, we'd have had to give you a special ceremony. <laughs> I said, huh, well, okay, thanks a lot. Anyway, what happens now? And they said, well, um, you'll get a letter from the, art, from the Ross Society of Arts, and they'll invite you to join and all the rest of it, which they did. And uh-huh. I looked at it, and by my joining fee was roughly three weeks' wages for me. Oh, wow. So I thought, oh, well, that's nice. Can't do that. Never mind. You know, I kind of forgot it. I gave the medal I got to my mother and said, yeah, put, some, put this somewhere useful, and, and, uh, and, and gave her the letter. And she said, well, that's nice, dear. Your dad would have been so proud. And I said, well, yeah, but I can't afford it. Never mind. Fast forward from 1968 to, um, what, I don't know, three or four years ago, my mother sends me this letter. I said, what an interesting thought. So I write to the Royal Society of Arts, and I say, uh, in 1968, I took your advanced level English exam, and you invited me to join society. Um, after some consideration, I'd like to take you up on that <laughs> offer. <laughs> so are you a member now? Yes, I am. I'm a fellow. There I'm you go. Very good. Yeah, all, these, all these years later, well, you know, you just never know. And stuff like that. But as my mum said, um, actually, when I, when I told her about it, and that's a good love, it, she said, hey, your dad would have been that proud Oh, nice. After some consideration. That was great. (laughs) I love that. Let's have a little bit of fun here. You've had all these different cars. So I'd love to know, what was your first really special car? And if you could share a memory you had with that vehicle. Well, I had an Austin 7 when I was in high school. I started out with a Fiat 500 that I bought from a friend, Topolino. 
which turned out to be a, a marine engine, which is to say it was full of water. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I, and I, I, I think I'm going to send you a note on this. Um, there was one other car like that running around in town that belonged to a friend of mine. And I said, my car's not rusty. Yours is a piece of junk, but mine doesn't run. Can I buy your engine? And, huh. uh, and T.T. Sims said, well, actually, I rather like my car. I'll tell you what, I'll buy your car. And huh. so I got more, again, I'm getting I got half my money back from the guy um, that I bought it from, and I got the other half from TT. And then I went out and bought an Austin 7. And I had that through high school, put three motors in it, hopped it up, you know, red wire wheels, wide white wall tires, hand applied, all this kind of stuff, covered yeah. with spotlights all the things you do in school, you know. Uh-huh. And, that was, and it was a great car. And it was, it was the first thing I could actually get in to go someplace and be pretty certain I'd arrive, you know. Wow. But at the end of that time, I basically uh, finished up school. It's the same, everything, everything finished up at once, you know. Basically, I um, got fired from my summer job, uh, blew up my last motor, broke up with my girlfriend, you know. Oh, gosh. It was a very bad chain of events, you the know. And I can remember of ill content. Oh, yeah, I remember walking around, you know, most of the evening, what the hell am I going to do now? Join the army? Join the French <laughs> Foreign Legion? I don't know, you know. I'm standing on Hampton Court Bridge, you know. I'm thinking, maybe I just need to hit the reset button. I'll just come back next time and do this better. And I thought, no, I can't jump. I got my best jacket on. If I change my mind, it'll be ruined. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> it never occurred to me just to take the bloody jacket off. <laughs> well, thank goodness. <laughs> How about seller's remorse? Is there a vehicle you've let go over this period of time that you really wish you had back in your garage? Yeah, probably there is, actually. I had a a black 72 uh, Chrysler Imperial um, for like 20 years, and it had genuine 20th Century Fox history, which is to say it didn't just have stories. It had paperwork to go with it, and it had some movie history as well. And I had it for years, and I finally moved into northwest Portland, and they'd made the parking spaces so small. It just like just nothing I could do with it, mm-hmm. and my brother was emigrating from England to um, Victoria, which is basically that's as that's as far as you can go from England and not leave England <laughs> is, to, is to go to Victoria because it's kind of as they say in Canada, it's where old people go to visit their parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kipling called it Hastings with mountains. <laughs> you know. And so I said, just take the car, and if it quits on you, don't worry about it. It doesn't owe me a dime. So my brother takes this thing, and, and, and he loved it, and he repainted it, and he fixed some things on it and stuff, and he drove it. And finally, he bought a house in Victoria, which, if you're familiar with it, is pretty small. You know, the streets are narrow. It's, he was across from a school. He had a one-car garage it would not fit in. Well, that Chrysler Imperial is huge. Those are big oh, yeah. cars. 20 feet long, you know. Yeah. I mean, basically... And one of the few things banned from demolition derbies. <laughs> I'll bet, because <laughs> they'd but, wipe but, everything out. Yeah, well, it's 18 inches from the bumper to the grill for a start. Right, yeah. No, no, no Imperials and no New Yorker wagons. Uh, well, I can <laughs> see that? I can see why. And those are, those Imperials were cool. The front ends almost looked like the back of a car because the headlights were, were hidden, I believe. They, they yeah, kind of popped just, down. Yeah, they had this big, long, mouth, wide grill. A mouth organ. Like yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. How about current projects? Is there something you're working on today that really has you excited and fired up? Yeah, actually, I've several things. I've got a, um, well, my main thing is I've got a 77 uh, Daimler Vandenplas, which I bought mm. at auction. And this is a good lesson about auction. Uh, there are a number. The first one, the most important one is never drive a car home from an auction. <laughs> yes. Ever, ever. You ship it home. Otherwise, you wind up basically having it conk out in the middle of nowhere, and the only person who's going to pick you up then is going to be some guy named Cletus with a 52 Ford Wrecker with a big <laughs> claw on the back. Yes. And he will drag it into some little town where they can't fix it, but they will steal radio. Yeah. <laughs> 
So 2009, I'm in Scottsdale because I've been going down covering the auctions there now for, what, 10 years, I guess. Mm -hmm. One of my friends, uh, Chip Lamb, has a car at RM, uh, not RM, at um, Russo and Steel. Russo, okay. And uh, he says, you go look at this. So I go over and look at it, and it is a, it's a 77 dark gray metallic uh, Daimler Vandenplatz, which is a fancy version of an XJ6. Only sold basically in England, Connolly leather, all this kind of stuff, mm -hmm. uh, vinyl roof and so forth. And the thing that's interesting in this car is it's left-hand drive, a four-speed and overdrive. And all the XJ6s that came to this country are automatics. I mean, every single one. And this one is, and it's, I'm looking at it, and it's a right car. It's, it's left-hand drive and with a four-speed and so forth. So it doesn't sell at auction because nobody has a clue what it is, but I know what it is, so I buy it from Chip after. Mm -hmm. And I get it shipped home following Rob Sass's advice, very best advice I ever got about auctions. Other than Another Cars Yeah guest, Rob. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, um, yeah, that's, that's the best auction, advice auction about auctions that I ever got. It. So I get it home, and it toodles around for a while, and, and I start trying to reconstruct its history because there's only two left-hand drive, four-speed, three four-speed XJ6s in this country, and they all came in with diplomats from Europe. Mm -hmm. So what's the history of this? And I finally track it back. It's got one thing on it that's like um, a sticker on that window for Hearst Park Motors. Now, Hearst Park Motors uh, is a garage that basically buys and rebuilds and restores cars, and it's two miles from where I grew up. So I call, the guy, I call the guys up, and I say, I've got a car here that came through your hands. And it had all this paperwork from England, including the tax discs and the three owners who had it. But I've got a problem with it. I cannot make the number make any sense on this because, according to this, it's supposed to be right-hand drive. And the guy says, well, tell me about the car. I tell him about it. It's a 30,000-mile car, this charcoal-colored, and it's got uh, tan leather. And Oh, he said, yeah, I remember that car. We bought it out of storage. We had to do something to the motor. I think the motor was bad. He said, but it was right-hand drive then, and it was uh, automatic. So then I've got to try and find the next owner. Well, the next owner is pissed that the chip that took the car to auction, and he doesn't want to talk to anybody. But finally... I get through to him and say, I have your car, Duncan. I need to know what the history is. So he says, all right. He says, I've been over here. I'm an electrician. I'm working in, in Las Vegas. And he said, I was planning on retiring here. And he said, I want to bring my car, but I wanted it to be left-hand drive. And then while I was at it, I thought I wanted to stick. So I went to Switzerland, and I bought a parts car. And I took it back on my trailer. I get to the, to the, to the, to the, to the channel. And I'm thinking, I don't have any paperwork on this because Swiss cars, the plates and everything stays with the government. Uh, and that's it. He says, what's going to happen? Well, he said, luckily for me, he said, there were four Middle Eastern gentlemen in a van in front of me. And they were busy taking that van apart to the absolute possible nut and bolt. And they waved me through. Oh. And I said, holy <laughs> fuck, I was lucky. Yes. So I said, well, what, what happened? He said, well, I took my old car, he said. And he said, I spent 18 months swapping all the stuff off of the rusty car into my car. Okay. They said it is all absolutely correct because they went down the production line side by side, left and right hand drive. He okay. said that car is absolutely complete correct. And I said, well, so why did you sell it after all that work? He said, well, he said, uh, you know, I, I was I coming over here and I was going to retire here and my wife and kids came over to Las Vegas and looked around and said, come home when you come to your senses. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Yeah. <laughs> Well, here's a very introspective question for you. If Paul was a car, what kind of car would he be and why? Well, actually, I'll answer your other question on oh. that, and because it'll go, it'll go both ways on that. Because you said, if I had to get rid of everything, I could only have one car, and I'm stuck with it. What's it going to be? I'd buy a Morgan three-wheeler, because that's as close as you can get to riding a motorbike and still be able to talk to the person you're with. Ah, Okay. Okay. And uh, basically, and uh, you know, the, the old super sports, they're impossible to drive, so there's a great sort of challenge there because 
you know, the hand throttles on the steering wheel along the spark advance, and both of those things turn when the wheel turns. Oh, that's right, yeah, that. yeah. yeah. And in order to put the top up on one of those, you have to, well, you can't get out of the car unless you put the top down first. <laughs> Gosh. Is that who Paul is? This interesting configuration of pieces and yeah. parts? and Yeah, okay. Yeah. Making, you're making lots of interesting noises, and that's one of the things, but it's a motorbike is what, that's the great thing, because I've ridden bikes my whole life, and, and this way I get the best in both worlds. And one of the ways that they are so similar is that in England, in vintage racing, the Morgans can race against the motorbikes and sidecars, because it's the way the rules put it, you got three wheels and there two people. Very and cool. Cool. Yeah. Good. Have fun. <laughs> so, Paul, up next is the last lap, but before we put the pedal to the metal, here's a little something. For the Cars Yeah listeners, Carpe Viem, seize the road. It's the motto at carpegear.com, where you'll find the Little Red Racing Car, an award-winning book written and illustrated by passionate car guy Dwight Knowlton. It's a spectacular way to introduce children to the love of cars. It's an international award winner, and Yahoo Autos calls it the best kid's book ever. Plus, it's printed in the USA. I may be an adult, but this kid loves the Little Red Racing Car. Dwight is finishing a second book in collaboration with Sir Sterling Moss about the story of his record-breaking win of the 1955 Mille Miglia. Check out Dwight's Carpe Viem brand where you can find his books, shirts, and more that embrace his seize-the-road philosophy. Enjoy Carpe Viem at carpegear.com and be sure to sign up for his newsletter while you're there. That's carpegear.com, C-A-R-P-E, gear.com. All right, Paul, we're back and we're entering the last lap. And this is where I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So are you ready? Shoot. What is the best automotive advice you've ever received? Oh, um, I think we just touched on that. Never drive a car home from an auction. Ever, (laughs) ever, ever. I think that's great advice. I have a whole story about that one. (laughs) Could you share one of your personal habits that you believe has contributed to your success? Deadlines. I work to deadlines. Yes. Um, and that actually works. It works pretty well for everything because you can run, but you can't hide. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I understand. Do you have a resource that you'd like to share with our listeners that you're really fond of? To tell you the truth, all my useful connections are just that. They're people. People. Ah. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's all right. I'll, 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 par- I'll paraphrase that answer um, a little bit. People say, you know, well, how do you know all this stuff? And I, I would say, I don't. I know who to ask. I know who to ask. Thing. Yes, yes. Don't, don't, yeah, don't buy a dog and bark yourself. <laughs> I like that. I've had a couple other guests who said the same thing, and I would agree. Pick up the phone and talk to somebody. Oh, yeah, I can give you, I can give you living examples on that. I mean, a 50, don't rebuild a 55 Packard without checking why they all went wrong in the first place. <laughs> I'll make a note of that. The clue is oil pump. You have oil. to put a 56 oil pump in it or the motor will last no longer the second time than it did the first. Oh, good tip, good tip. I love that's it. Why the, that's why the company went broke. It did them in. Now, this one might be difficult. Is there one book you could share with our listeners that you really think they would enjoy? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, it's the uh, Vintage Car Pocketbook by Cecil Clutton and Anthony Bird. And I, I won my copy uh, as a handwriting prize in 1959. What's great about it is... It is so wittily written, as well as being informative. Mm-hmm. For example, the, the, no, the notes on Duesenberg, so it describes how excellent the designs were, and then it points out the very and says, but the car failed to catch on. You know, perhaps, <laughs> you know, 
people weren't ready to pay that much money for things, while the Europeans were undoubtedly put off by the brash appearance of the machine. Anyway, it's unlikely that it's as good as it set out to be. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, that's really cool. That's fantastic. I love that. That's a first a first here, too. So, uh, listeners, again, you can find links to these fun resources at com slash Paul Duchenne. And Paul's last name is spelled D-U-C-H-E-N-E. All right, we're up to the checkered flag. Now, you already answered this question with the Morgan three-wheeler. Um, are you going to still hold two to that if you could only have one collector car in your garage? That would be the oh, car? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Pre- pre- preferably with the uh, the matchless engine. It's not quite as powerful as the JAP one, but it holds together. The more power they got out of the JAP, the less reliable it was. And anybody who's grown up around English cars knows that's the one thing to look out for. Great. Awesome. Paul, you've taken me on a great ride today, and I know you were going to do that. Our good friend Diane Brandon connected us together. She's been a guest here on Cars, yeah, and she said that you were going to be great fun, and you were jolly good fun for sure. I've really enjoyed (laughs) your stories, and I want to thank you for sharing your journey with the Cars, yeah, listeners and with me. Is there one parting piece of guidance you could offer our listeners before you drive off down the lane in that Morgan three-wheeler? Absolutely. Don't buy cars to make money. Any time you buy something, and I finally got this through Rob Sass's head too, buy it as if tomorrow money's worthless and you're stuck with it. Are you happy? Uh, wonderful. That's, wonderful. That's the whole thing. Yes. Because remember, if you buy a Volvo because it's going to be reliable and it isn't, what else have you got there? It's <laughs> ugly. Yes. You know? <laughs> Great advice. Is there a way for our listeners to learn more about you and what you're doing these days? Uh, yeah, through LinkedIn, uh, probably, and you can Google me, and that, although that mostly shows you where I've been, not necessarily where I'm going. So, <laughs> listeners, you can find links to everything we've talked about here at CarsYeah.com. Just put Paul in the search box, and his show notes page will pop right up. Paul, thanks for being so generous with your time and your expertise. Again, for sharing your experiences with the listeners and with me. I've had a great time. Until we talk again, I'll see you down the road. Thanks, Mark. Lots of fun. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah. Yeah.